On this episode, we talked to Wes Buckwalter, owner at Sea Monster Studios, a 15-year-old Shopify agency. Wes has a unique perspective on e-commerce and the subscription space as he built the self-proclaimed first coffee subscription platform in 2001. Because of this, Wes leaned into e-commerce and subscriptions, and Seamonster has worked with hundreds of brands, helping them launch, scale, and continually learn from past experiences. We chat about compliance and why the ever-changing regulations are a good thing for merchants, not a burden. Wes dives into how being a compliance store can bring many benefits, including SEO, better acquisition, and higher retention stats. So let's get started. Wes, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Seamonster. Well, so I'm the owner and uh, creative director at Sea Monster Studios, and so most of the time I'm involved in our, our projects from start to finish. Uh, I deal a little bit with client services, a little bit with design and art direction, a little bit of engineering direction as well. And so as a full service agency, we deal with everything from traditional design in print, uh, product packaging, branding, brand strategy, and things of that nature. And then you know, as of late, uh, by demand mostly, we deal with a lot of digital as well. So everything from websites to web applications, uh, we specialize specifically in Shopify and Shopify plus e-commerce sites, uh, subscription programs, and really trying to deal with um, what we would call like the full stack solution. So an end to end solution provider for understanding the entire ecosystem of an e-commerce platform, helping merchants uh, not only understand sort of how to build their website or how to design their website, but what are the other tools uh, that may contribute to data an analysis or um, subscription programs or shipping programs and things of that nature that uh, sort of help help the merchant understand like all of the moving parts that exist within an e-commerce system uh, so they can sort of develop their solutions around it, I suppose. Awesome. Love all the detail. Really appreciate it. Uh, one of the things we're going to hop into today, which you didn't explicitly mention, but you kind of hinted at, which is this kind of idea of a lot of different systems coming together within an e-commerce platform. Um, we're going to hop into compliance, which is the sexiest and the most fun thing to talk through, which I'm sure everyone's pumped about to listen to. Um, before that, though, I know that there uh, there's a long history for you in e-commerce. Um, you've been around since 2001, I believe, in the e-commerce field. So give us a little background uh, that's right. on your kind of your history and what you've built up to now. Uh, well, I started working for somebody else back in the good old days, uh, and so did not uh, did not start Sea Monster at that point, but worked for another large coffee company, uh, and happened to be one of the first coffee companies I think in the United States that that came up with both an e-commerce solution, um, and then by happenstance uh, decided, wouldn't it be great if people could subscribe to a coffee? Uh, and really had no sort of example of of something like that happening in the past, or you know another website to sort of reverse engineer and steal from, or or otherwise, and so essentially rolled our own solution. And so as a small team, uh, we were fortunate enough uh, in the Puget Sound area to work around a bunch of really great engineering companies and uh, development agencies and sort of tapped my contacts to say, you know, how could we build something like this that I don't think exists yet for uh, sort of traditional retail commerce users. And so with a lot of trial and error and a bunch of hacked together systems and credit card platforms that don't exist anymore sort of cobbled together this subscription coffee platform um, that I think was the first to the table, at least in, in the United States. But, uh, you know, many may have done it before us and I just didn't realize it, but um, started hot and heavy on a single corporate website that uh, that grew from zero to a, a pretty lucrative website over the tenure that I was there. Um, and then at some point in my life, I decided, you know, now's the chance to try to do this myself as a, as a company, formed Sea Monster Studios uh, way back in 2007 and have been at it ever since. 
I love it. We'll give you credit for, for first e-commerce coffee I'd, company. I'd like to take credit for it. I'm not confident that I can, but uh, right. I'll, I'll take it. I'll well, we're not it. going under penalty of law, but but as far Fair as uh, hearsay, I'll, I'm happy to give you credit for that. That sounds great. Right on. It's so funny that, that coffee companies seem to be one of the most repeatable businesses as far as subscription goes in 2022, at least. You know, everyone drinks coffee so consistently. I've had three cups of coffee today, I regret to admit. But everyone needs their coffee so frequently that it kind of just is a no-brainer to get them on on subscription. But I got to imagine way back in the day, it's a lot harder to to kind of visualize. You know, we need a login platform. We need to you know be able to skip and swap and adjust and all these kind of things. How was that process of kind of identifying what the tough pieces were to build? Or was the whole thing just difficult? It was a lot of fly by the seat of our pants. Uh, and so, you know, we had a credential system already so people could log in just to view sort of read-only order history. Um, had no concept of managing a subscription at the time. It was like unsubscribe if you need to and start a new one if you need to. Um, and I think we had a limited frequency choice as well. It was either every month or every other month or something like that. And it was it was really rudimentary by today's standards, but it gave the consumer some amount of control. Uh, they could stop and start as they needed. Um, and I think we chose monthly because we sort of figured, well, nobody's going to have too much coffee at that point. If they need to order more, they can start two subscriptions and stagger them. We had no way to alter the timeline or any of those things. And so it was really basic. And even as administrators, we couldn't alter them for the consumer either because we couldn't manipulate their payment system. And so it was once you set it, it was on until you stopped it. And then once you had to reset it, you had to come back and reset it yourself. So. By today's standards, it was a horrible user experience, but in the good old days, it was a fantastic experience. You got coffee without having to think about it. And you know, by the time I ended my run with it, it was like 50% of the revenue stream for the company I was working for. Wow. Um, and so it was it was a huge advantage in the in a world where, you know, this this company we were working for was competing with Starbucks and and much bigger companies. And so, you know, and at that point, Starbucks did not have an e-commerce presence at all. And so it was kind of nice to sort of beat the big guys, even though they're a little bit of our hometown heroes as well. Um, it was it was cool to be tech forward. I was fortunate enough to have a boss who allowed me to sort of do those things, even though they were experimental and weird. And he kept telling me, you know, this Internet thing may catch on someday. We'll see if it goes goes well. <laughs> but um you know, I was fortunate enough to have somebody who was confident in our sort of skills, I guess you would say, and sort of let us do our thing. Um, and it turns out that's sometimes all you need to be the genesis of a really creative system or, you know, a cobbled together, held together with spit and duct tape system anyway. I was going to say, what's the best practice? I, uh, I would kind of answer that own question by saying that probably not having two separate subscriptions to stagger your delivery dates is probably a best practice. Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think these days, you know, letting the consumer control stuff to their own will, I think is the essential, right? I mean, we've got an insane Absolutely. amount of opportunity to measure data and understand who our subscribers are, ask them what they want, give them flexibility in their plans and their controls. I mean, I think, the way that we typically talk about subscriptions as an agency today is that the consumer should have ultimate decision-making power over everything they do, whether it's the product they're receiving or the timeline they get it in. If we can let them order something every 23 days, if that's what they really want, that may be the perfect amount of whatever the something is that they need. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you don't overburden them with products. So they walk away as a result of having too much, that they can stop and start when they please, that they can go on vacation and not worry about a bag of coffee sitting on their front porch for three weeks or whatever. Um, and I, I think it also means that you spend less time dealing with customer service and complaints or 
alterations internally. If you give the consumer control, they can do whatever they want. Uh, and you spend a little bit of less person power attacking problems that can be fixed by letting the consumer be happier with the process anyway. I think that 23 day thing that you brought up, which I'm sure was just a, a random number pulled out, but I think that's a really cool example of where subscriptions are going in the future is this idea of like non, non, you know, perfect uh, delivery dates. Um, I said, I've had three cups of coffee today. How does, you know, coffee company X know that their coffee drinkers have one cup a day versus two every other day versus one day it's five and the next day it's zero. And occasionally that, you know, that frequency ends up being 23 days. And I think that's, that's going to be a really interesting space to watch, I think. Well, and I, and I think the thing not to forget that oftentimes we end up sort of bringing up in conversation is why not just ask, you know, I think a, a lot of, a lot of companies sort of think they know best, you know, well, I can measure that every couple of weeks, you're going to need this much coffee based on this average, but everybody's a little bit unique and whether it's coffee or cheese or face cream or, you know, any other consumable product or even non-consumable products, they run out at some point uh, and everybody uses them a little bit uniquely. There's a lot of commonality, but we now have opportunities to help people cater to their desires. And, you know, I think that leads to an ultimate amount of success and really customer happiness as well. I think loyalty is a big deal. You know, everybody assumes when we subscribe somebody to our product, they're going to be around forever. But the more flexible subscription plan or the slightly cooler, easier to use product tends to take over. And if we can find ways to give the consumer exactly what they want when they want it, uh, the rate of attrition reduces uh, rapidly. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. So let's flip the script a little bit. We talked a little bit about best practices in your 20 plus year journey. What's something you've seen that's kind of a consistent problem that somebody has, you know, since 2001 all the way up through 2022, uh, something that people are constantly seeing as an issue? Uh, you know, I think fulfillment tends to be an issue across the board, you know, whether it's the beginning of the of the supply chain or the end of the supply chain. I mean, I think what we've seen with the pandemic in play is either product not getting to where it needs to be produced or turned into its final state or the product leaving its warehouse or facility or production facility of some sort and not getting to the consumer in the timeline that they would expect. And so when you're thinking about uh, like food, especially specialty food or consumables, you have a limited timeline of freshness that is required to get something where it needs to be on time. Um, other cases, it's just a matter of gratification. You know, Amazon has taught all of us that shipping should take less than two days. And so Which as is a result, we've, we've got a conditioned society that assumes shipping should be free and that it should be here, you know, 15 minutes after I order it or whatever. And where I'm at in Seattle, for example, I've often gotten products the same day I order them, which makes me pretty jaded when I'm two days into a waiting for a shipment and saying like, why is this thing not here? I can't believe I have to wait this long when just five years ago, I would have waited, you know, three weeks for something to arrive and not had a problem with it. It's a really interesting point. <laughs> Depends where but, your fulfillment um, centers are around the country. If you live near them, you're better off. And if not, it takes you a couple, a couple days. Well, and I, I think some of that comes down to, to be able to just communicate with your customers effectively. You know, if you have a, right. a good marketing channel or the right amount of communications that touches all the right points of something's being packed, something's being shipped, it's on its way. Uh, the mailman has experienced a delay or something like that. You know, I think as long as the, the seller, the merchant is communicating that to a consumer, there's a lot more forgiveness in that concept uh, somewhere along the way. And I think an amplified amount of customer service as a result as well. So you talk communication, you talk customer service. I think the, the next logical step here is to hop into compliance, which I know we were going to spend a little bit of time on. For sure. um, compliance is something that Seamonster does really, really well. It's something you guys are, are really high on. It's, it's kind of a core to who you guys are as a company. Um, 
define for me first what compliance is. It's not just following a, you know, a specific law. Um, and then we'll talk in sure. details about it. Well, compliance has been, I guess I would say a bit of a gray area, even though there is a standard for it. Uh, I think along the way it's been evolving rapidly as well. Uh, but it, it really comes down to making things more equitable for everybody on the web. And so when we think about Americans as a, as a demographic, something like one in four of us has some form of a disability, whether that's a speech impairment or vision impairment, auditory impairments, uh, physical impairments, whatever it might be. And everybody uses and interacts with the internet in a different way. And so maybe, uh, you know, you can't see or you have a certain amount of vision impairment and so you have difficulty seeing certain things. And so compliance, I guess, allows a person with some form of a disability to experience the internet in an equitable way or in the same way that somebody who has no impairments would would as well. Um, and so there's a standard called WCAG compliance, which stands for Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And it's, it's a bit of a moving target in the sense that it keeps evolving much like home building codes would, uh, but they keep getting better is really what it is. They discover new mechanisms or hardware uh, that allow users to use the internet in a different way. And so building, your website or your digital solution in such a way that you'll allow everybody in your audience to experience it rather than just fully able-bodied people to experience it is, is what the guideline's all about. What is an example or two of something in this WCAG compliance law uh, that you can point to that would say, you know, hey, you should be doing this because of, you know, this is the alternative? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the really easy ones uh, are, are super easy to pick out and super easy for anyone to deal with themselves. So something as simple as alt tags that are assigned to images and alt text stands for alternative text. And typically in the past, it's been referred to as an SEO move. You assign a logical human readable amount of text to an image. So for example, the picture of the hand holding the coffee cherry that's behind me, alt text would be something like hand holding a coffee cherry. Um, and it describes what the image is. And if you can imagine a blind person traversing a website with a screen reader and the screen reader just keeps saying picture, 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 it's a really negative experience for that person who may be staring at a product photo that isn't being related to them as a product photo. And so as a result, um, you know, you, you lose the impact of your website and all of this great content that you've created without telling people what that content is. And at the same time, robots like screen readers for search engines uh, will also consume that and amplify the sort of findability or the searchability of that image uh, within their engines as well. And so um, that's a really easy one to pick off the list. Um, another one that we run across really commonly is stuff like color contrast ratios. Uh, and so to be fully compliant, and there's multiple standards for compliance, but let's say for an average retail business, uh, you have to have a certain amount of contrast ratio that's based like on the darkness and lightness of colors when they're used together, um, maybe the size of the text that's being used in a combination with colors and things like that. And so a lot of times what we run into are brands that have existed for a long time who, you know, 20 years ago when their brand was being invented, didn't have compliance to care about or even regulations or maybe even the internet to worry about. Uh, and so they have things like primary brand colors that don't work well together when we're talking about folks with vision impairments, for example. Um, you know, and so what we run into is something like a button that's say like light blue with darker blue text on it. And they don't meet a ratio of contrast between those two colors to allow somebody with a vision impairment to be able to differentiate those two colors from each other. Uh, and so a lot of times we investigate sort of these low hanging fruit items right out of the gate, which, you know, once you've gained a little bit of understanding and expertise, you can kind of pick out just by looking at it. I mean, it's, there's a bit of a science to it, but a lot of it's a, like, you'll know it when you see it scenario. 
Um, and then a lot more of it comes down to the complexity within the code, making sure that it's written correctly and semantically consumable by even more intelligent systems like screen readers or braille readers or, um, you know, even something as simple as like closed captioning, which we're used to on seeing in TV. Um, you know, with all these influencer videos and product videos and things like that coming into play these days, a lot of folks don't realize you have to have closed captioning in your videos for them to be compliant. And so you're otherwise basically putting a video into your site that say somebody with a hearing impairment could never understand because there's nothing that tells them what's going on. Um, and so things like that are, are relatively simple moves uh, that help with compliance. And then you know, as you grow up as a company, there's much more complex things that you might want to engage with a developer to, to sort of look under the hood and find out if, if there's other deeper problems. I love those examples. And I'm so glad you brought up uh, closed captioning and also like button colors, I think are two that popped out to me. Um, when people hear compliance, sometimes they think, oh, this is boring. You want to have to worry about compliance, any of that kind of stuff. But things like colorblindness is, is a real disability. And it's a real something that people actually struggle with. Um, I have family and friends all over the, the place. Uh, some some funny story real quick. Um, what a friend of mine was buying a ticket at a movie theater and, uh, you know, you flip the screen around and it says, you know, pick whatever seat you want. And one of the, the, the colors for the chairs that are free is like a dark blue and the color for the chairs that are, are taken is a light blue. But, you know, this person's looking at the screen and they the colorblindness just blends them all together and you have no clue what seat is open and what seat's closed. That's something that, you know, most people would just say is best practice, but that's a compliance issue. That's something that you really need to watch out for to make sure that people can actually track these things. So like those are those are both really good examples. Well, and it plays into usability as well, right? You want as many users as you can have to use your website, you know, and I think the thing that sort of impacted me the most was a conversation we had with somebody that was an expert a long time before we decided to become experts was like, if you can imagine going to a brick and mortar store and let's say your legs don't work and you uh, are in a wheelchair and they don't have ramps and they don't have doors wide enough for your wheelchair to fit into, but there's a greeter at the front door that says, well, the store for people in wheelchairs is actually in the back parking lot, has a limited number of products that you can sort of view and understand. But if you just roll yourself back there, uh, you know, you can shop there, everybody else can come into the store and then it starts raining. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're basically this person who's been told, like, you don't really matter to us, but we had to do something for you. Uh, and so just, you know, work your way around the corner and, you know, off you go. Uh, and, and I thought about that in a real life scenario, like how horrible it would feel to both say that to somebody and be that somebody who it was said to. Um, you know, and that that's the thing that sort of hammered home that like we need to address this problem as an agency. You know, and I think one of the things I've found is that there's nobody out there, whether you're going to college or you're taking a trade school sort of route for learning it, development and engineering or design, telling people this is becoming law and you should think about users from a usability perspective that aren't just yourself. You're not just an able-bodied, fully abled person to, you know, consume the internet. There's a million ways to consume it. And, you know, it, it used to be the same thing when we were talking about responsive websites. Well, only so many of our users use phones. And so we don't need to make a responsive website because that's, you know, there's only 10% of our audience. Well, in my region now, it's like 80% of our audience. And so now, and that was only a few years ago, if you remember, only well, one or two to maybe three not, years ago. Not that long ago. Friendly. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at it like, are we going to make moves that eliminate a chunk of our audience? And like, if my statistic is accurate, are we going to eliminate 25% of our audience right out of the gate by doing the wrong thing? Um, you know, and, and, and that's irrelevant of the laws and regulations that are coming into play as well. I mean, at some point, we're not going to have a choice but to be compliant. Uh, and so, 
you know, as a result of that, it's it's sort of we can do the right thing because we can. It only takes a little bit of extra knowledge to do it. But if we just want to think about it from a purely selfish perspective, it's there's a 25 percent chunk of our audience that we're skipping out on and all that revenue and all of those people that we could interact with as as designers and developers or as merchants that is ultimately very important to to keep in our audience. I mean, everybody's money spends the same way. Uh, and there's so no reason to limit somebody from becoming your customer in, in a discriminatory way, whether it's on accident or on purpose or otherwise. One of my favorite conversations to have as a merchant's why, you know, why are you selling this product? Why does this matter to you? Something like that. How does, how does compliance fold into a merchant's why? You know, there's so many people who talk about, you know, we only deal with organic products or we only sell, uh, you know, fair trade products, things like that. Is this just another level of like, you know, we care about all people. We really want to make sure that everybody has accessibility to these things. I think so. I mean, when you get down to the, you know, purely business minded money making person, I mean, it kind of steps back to that chunk of the audience that we're leaving behind. Right. It's a revenue generating mechanism. I think kind of just more people that, that it, exactly. And so but most people that we encounter that care about compliance out of the gate are there because it's about equity and fairness and it's about doing the right thing because they need to or they have to or they want to. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks are like, well, everybody eats cheese, so I shouldn't be able to not sell cheese to folks with disabilities or everybody needs an opportunity to enter my store in whatever way they see fit and shop it and so forth. And so a lot of it's about doing the right thing to be inclusive or to be understanding of people of all walks of life. I mean, you wouldn't say that, um, you know, I'm going to limit my store based on racial demographic or age demographic or male or female demographic or you know any other you know sort of pick pick a binary thing or whatever and say this half doesn't get to be here uh like nobody would do that and so now we're trying to blur that line that's been drawn around able-bodied and disabled people is saying that there is no line it's everybody is in the audience and we need to erase that line as well if we're going to have a conversation about inclusivity and equity and things like that when it comes to e-commerce or when it comes to websites in general um, you know, and I think what we're seeing is a lot of much larger enterprise dealing with it first. And I think a lot of that becomes, you know, they have a, uh, a bit of a larger target because they have more money, they're more suable, um, you know, some of those kind of things. But I think also they're the organizations who have HR departments who focus on inclusivity and making things fair for their employee base and stuff like that. And so they have a larger amount of awareness, maybe a larger motivation to keep a workforce happier and thus an audience happier as well. Um, and so we started to see it much more prominently in large enterprise. Um, and, and now I think it's, it's just becoming something that everybody cares about. It's becoming part of our cultural vernacular and it's starting to be a thing where it's like nobody would limit somebody for any of the other reasons I listed off. And so this is now one other thing to get out of that list of horrible things and mistakes that we've made as a society to sort of eliminate, uh, you know, people's possibility of an, enjoying our cheese or whatever it might be. From a subscription standpoint, the customer portal is a major place that most people know about. So that's one, you know, once you buy your product, you have to log back into your portal and manage your subscription, whether it's cross sells, upsells, skip swaps, whatever it is. Um, how does something like WCAG compliance play into subscription portals uh, when we're talking kind of like pre-purchase and post-purchase? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, step one is, you know, getting somebody to make the purchase, right? We've acquired them as a customer. We've built a compliant website that allowed a, a non-able-bodied person to get through the purchase process and complete a checkout. And then, you know, typically in a subscription process, the next step is receiving a, 
invite to a portal or a text message that gets you into the portal or something that allows that person to interact with their subscription from sort of post-purchase until the next recurrence of the subscription, for example. And so if that consumer, say, gets an email that can't be read for color contrast reasons or uh, because it's not using semantic text or something, they never get to interact with the portal as a result. And so, you know, I, th I think it sort of plays into sort of step one, getting them into the portal, making sure they can sign in, access their account, see all the things and so forth. And whether C means their screen reader reads it to them or their braille interpreter interprets it for them, or they can visually, uh, you know, accomplish whatever they need to, then it's a matter of getting them around the screen. So can we allow the user to alter their credit card or select a new product or swap a variant or, uh, you know, product type within their subscription to switch out to a new flavor or something. Um, and then likewise, you know, just understand that they've taken all the steps as quickly as possible to logically traverse through a portal uh, and then alter what they need. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, let's say, making sure that the portal is accessible with keyboard controls or, um, you know, can be read to a user by a screen reader who may be using another assistive tool to click on things or whatever, um, and that it responds appropriately to all of those tools, not just a mouse interaction or a touchpad or whatever, whatever the device might be that's being used. They're all great points. You brought up acquisition, which is where I wanted to go next anyway. Is this something that you have seen measurably change acquisition for certain brands who actually lean into this? Or is this something um, that you know, we're kind of is. just talking this, it's a good idea to do and it's something you should cover your bases for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the beginning, it started out with um, a bit of brands showing up saying, hey, we got this form letter from an attorney that tells us that we've done the wrong thing. And so, you know, we we need to do this because we're being, we're in trouble or we're being, forced we're being sued or we're being forced to do this. Right. And I think there was hesitancy in the concept of forcing the hand as well. I think it was what if we just fight this? And it's like, well, are you really going to be the company that fights for the right to be uh, discriminatory to somebody who has disabilities? Like, absolutely not. And you'd be out of your mind to do that, uh, at least at least as a business anyway. I mean, I, whatever your opinions are, you're here to make money. You're here to make customers happy. That's your j actual job as a business. And so you would be insane to do that. But I think what we started to see, though, was businesses who decided you know, I want to be more compliant just because I've heard of somebody being sued or because I've seen the legends or, you know, I've heard about these terrible things that can happen if you're not. And so are we or aren't we compliant? We don't really know. Can we assess it or not? And so, you know, taking simple steps to assess correct issues and so forth do, does a couple of things. I mean, one of the, the nicest benefits of, of being WCAG compliant is you uh, you know, sort of increase your SEO with it. You have semantically written code that's more traversable by robots, whether that's an assistive technology or a search engine of some sort. And so what you start to see is sites that maintain WCAG compliance um, show up in search more often. And as a result, they acquire more customers or they attract more people through search and through, uh, you know, sort of non-organic type means. And then you know, hopefully as a result, some of those customers are able to use their assistive technology to get through and the able-bodied customers who don't rely on assistive technology maybe found them as a result more likely than they didn't. Um, and so we do see, you know, a pretty good uptick in not only, uh, I guess, search result usage uh, or search acquisition, but um, what we can also assume, because we're not necessarily asking our audience, are you able or disabled-bodied person? 
that some amount of conversion increase is attributed to people who otherwise couldn't previously use the website being able to use it more effectively as well. Um, as an agency, we haven't necessarily chosen to measure the demographic of people with ability or lack thereof using a website. And so I don't really have a great measure of anything but an assumption that I can make about that. But seeing an uptick in conversion uh, would seem that leaning in on WCAG compliance has definitely not hurt things. Uh, but in most cases, we do see either an increase in initial traffic and in some cases an increase in conversion as well. The relation to SEO is a super, super cool point that I had not really thought about. You brought up SEO earlier and I was going to try to dig into that a little bit, but it's tough to measure, but you're spot on. If you are building these things out the right way, uh, and I think image text is a great example to point to, um, better crawling for, for search engines, you know, listing on the front page, easier access for all new customers, higher acquisition costs, I'm sorry, higher acquisition percentage. So it certainly makes sense as you keep going uh, and you keep digging into you know, why acquisition costs are, are rising. This is a good, good solution to that. Well, and I think you know, at the end of the day, it's a lot cheaper to build an equitable site that allows 100% of the audience to access it, traverse your products, you know, um, sort of use the site to its maximum ability. And at the same time, uh, you know, you spend, let's say that same chunk of money on SEO or whatever, but you don't create a compliant site, you're actually kind of doing a little bit of both all at once. I mean, I think there's a lot more magic to search engine optimization than simply having alt tags and a semantically built site. But I think you're tackling a lot of the things that an SEO agency would also be tackling right out of the gate when they're sort of first surveying a site, maybe making small fixes that are easy, low hanging fruits to tackle as well. Um, you know, I, I think you, you get a lot more bang for your buck uh, than I think most people believe, right? I think it's a, like you said at the beginning, kind of an unglamorous thing, right? It's it's a compliance move. I'm trying to stick to building codes or whatever. I'm sort of, you know, not changing anything that makes my site more awesome to look at or whatever, but it makes it more awesome to use. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't necessarily gain sight on until they understand from someone else's shoes how they might use the internet. It's that, uh, you know, your site is ultimately more awesome to use for somebody who otherwise couldn't have used it without maintaining some level of compliance along the way. I think you're spot on. And so final question before we hop into our, our closing questions here, in the same way that this will help accessibility, does this help retention as well? And I think community is another one that, that plays into this. Once you start talking about everyone's accessible and you start talking about you know why we do this and it's not just a money grab, all of those things kind of play into retention, even though it may be similar to your SEO argument where you can't quite really measure that. Well, I think it must, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily have great proof again, because we're not measuring an able versus disabled bodied demographic, but I would assume that, you know, if, if we think about just our disabled audience, and it doesn't matter what their disability is, if they have a better time using your site than any other site that might be within your product line, or, uh, you know, your competition, let's say, it's, it's you and one other person, your site's fully compliant, theirs is not, uh, you know, disabled folks will have a much better chance of becoming your customer, staying your customer, using your site, you know, and, and it's it's not about lack of choice in that equation either. It's about who's done the best and the right things and somebody who hasn't loses pace on the competition. And so in a lot of ways, it's it's keeping up with the Joneses to some degree or another, but it's it's more about being out ahead. I think, you know, if you think about this chunk of your audience, if it, if it is truly 25% and it's just you and another competition and you're the only one that's compliant, well, that audience is all yours. 
you know, and I think as, as an easy move to retain somebody is make them feel welcome to make them understand that you've taken moves as a business to care about them being able to have the same experience that any other person would. Um, and that's gotta be a valid, valid reason to maintain a larger retention of the, the sort of customer base, I would say. Awesome. Really, really appreciate your context there. Let's hop into a couple of closing questions for you. I have a feeling I know what these may be about, but what advice would you give to a subscription brand just launching? Well, I mean, I would be remiss as an agency not to say engage with an agency. You know, I think there's a lot of things that a lot that folks can do themselves. You know, I think there's a lot of really smart startup businesses and whether it's somebody who's tech savvy or not, um, you know, platforms like Shopify and Recharge make it really easy to sort of help yourself and get started. Um, and I think that's great. One of the things, though, that I think the let's say the beginning user or the early startup type business uh, forgets is that an agency like ours that has hundreds of years of cumulative experience smashed together might know a bunch of things that you don't know and might help you take some shortcuts. And, you know, even though agencies are expensive and intimidating and say things that maybe don't make sense because our jargon is weird or whatever, um, we have almost every agency that I work with in the ecosystem has a ton of knowledge, you know, and I think knowledge is ultimately power. It lets you skip steps along the way that otherwise you would have to make the mistake, fail, rebuild, understand yourself. And like, we've all made those mistakes. We've all done the trial and error. We've worked with hundreds of businesses like yours, um, you know, and we can at the very least give you a couple of pointers and at the very best, like help you all the way to the top. Right. And so I, I think a lot of it's just a matter of you know, setting your apprehensions aside, you know, most agencies that I've worked with are really friendly, you know, even though we seem intimidating, there might be a bunch of smart nerdy engineers or something. Um, you know, agencies jobs is just the same as yours to provide a customer with great customer service, help you get where you need to go. I mean, it's, it's our job to help any merchant make money, for example. And so, um, if that's your goal is to get into business, to develop a product, get it out into the world, change the way the world works a little bit and make some money while you're doing it. I think in most cases, an agency versus a, somebody with limited or no experience will get you there a lot faster. Uh, and it may help you focus on things like product development, uh, you know, as a single CEO type company, you know, what's your time worth and, and where would you like to spend your efforts uh, as an example? And so would you like to be developing new products and coming up with fantastic uh, say concept or marketing, or do you want to be pushing buttons on your website, uh, you know, maybe figuring out a platform or otherwise. And so, you know, sometimes it's a matter of just simple division of labor. Do we provide you with opportunity to spend your time in a better place? Those are all great arguments. I'm a big agency fan as well. I love this, this uh, idea of what's your time worth, you know, uh, the trying and failing is definitely a great way to learn lessons. But also a lot of people have tried the same things and failed before you and you may just need to hop on an agency and learn those lessons from, from someone who's telling you what, what works and what doesn't. Let's flip the script and let's go the other way. Let's say a brand already is established. Let's say they're at this 10, 20,000 subscriber mark. What's something that they can do to get to the next level, get to the higher level? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is the, um, there's sort of two pathways that we encounter at that mark. How do we get more out of our existing customer base or how do we get more customers? And that seems to be sort of a, a dividing line most of the time. It's that when, when we get approached by a typical sort of, let's say, enterprise style company that's that's grown for a while, they've got a lot of, of sort of experience under their belt. It's, I need to go this way or I need to go that way. Um, and, and it's sort of the way that we tend to approach it is why wouldn't you do both? You know, and so if we think about your existing audience 
are we giving them all that they need? And is there any more that they can do for us? You know, and so what is it that would entice them to do that? Um, maybe it's a slight increase to the product price, you know, the simple business move of just crank up the price. It could be something about the offering could be a little more robust. Maybe it's something as simple as the unboxing experience could be better. You know, we could make a nicer package and that increases the value to the consumer, their joy of opening the package and their delight of experiencing your product or whatever. Um, and that's worth something to somebody as an example. And so that price increase becomes easily uh, more possible, for example. The other one is, you know, acquisition of new customers. I mean, there is only so much you can get out of a single audience without increasing its size over and over again. And also forgetting or without forgetting that sometimes those audiences leave their credit card expires and they just give up. They lose track of their subscriptions. They have too many things. They, you know, get tired of your product and they need more variety. And so a lot of times we try to take a holistic examination of not only how do we get more people, but how do we keep from losing the people that you have as well? And maybe you know, you're only losing a few here and there and everything's great. Maybe you're losing a lot rapidly because you have a, a frequency that's off or you haven't measured your data very well and you're sort of giving people too much of one thing, um, that kind of stuff. And so some of it comes down to maybe proper marketing, maybe understanding your audience. And there's really nothing wrong with asking your consumer, like, what is it that you like and don't like about us? How could we do better? Um, you know, and that's a, that's a thing that I think a lot of companies are afraid to ask their audience because they know better, right? I invented this product. I've told you how it's supposed to be. And so like, what would you know as the guy who's just consuming my product or the person who's just consuming my product? It's like, well, they probably know a lot. And I think something that we try to do is figure out, are we really in the audience that is our audience as a merchant or something, or are we not the right audience? Are we measuring based on our own opinions and ourselves rather than the opinions of the, the group at large? And so sometimes it's a simple matter of asking. Sometimes it's a matter of using data to our advantage, understanding metrics and numbers and reporting and things like that, building a system to consume data and turn it into usable information and inform a decision. Um, I mean, we're really big on making data-driven choices. If we can say with, with absolute fairness that this choice is being made based on behavior that consumers have become in a, given us as an example, then, you know, we can make a, an intelligent choice. If we have to go with a gut feeling, you know, maybe we have to ask a consumer, how would you do this? Or what, what would make you happy? What would make you happier if they're perfectly happy? Um, and try to appeal to that, that side of things. Cause I think when we look at the businesses that we've worked with that are the most successful, I think it's it's kind of several facets. They've got fantastic customer service. They've got a really great product or a product that's you know pretty good, but at a great price. It delivers well. It lasts a long time, or it satisfies a need that other products aren't. You know, and then at the same time, I think they um, when we're talking just about subscriptions, it shows up at just the right time. The consumer never has too much or too little. Um, you know, they feel like they're in control of their own destiny. Um, they're not bothered too much by, you know, having to manage it or manipulate it. I mean, the, one of the biggest advantages that was the original pitch of subscriptions is sign up and never come back. And now it's more like sign up and come back when you feel like controlling it, you know, and sort of giving people the opportunity to manipulate when they want and forget about it when they need to uh, could be something to focus on as well. I think are we creating an ease of use that's, you know, facilitating the consumption of our products or our services or otherwise, or are we causing the consumer to spend too much time dealing with it and then they get frustrated and walk away um, or as a result, maybe never come back once they've you know decided to come back somewhere along the way or something like that.
Again, really well said. A lot of content in there. Definitely worth re-listening and going back through. Final question for you, one I've been looking forward to the whole time. What physical products do you subscribe to? Oh, man, so many. I mean, like most of America, I'm an Amazon Prime member, and I use a lot of subscribe and save. So groceries, I think, are pretty common for me. I think when we think about... um, let's call it my luxury goods or my specialty goods. You know, I'm a, uh, I'm a Dr. Squatch, uh, subscriber. So, you know, soap and shampoo and things like that. I really enjoy that. Um, I think one of the things that I find myself doing is convenience products. So I, you know, use an electric toothbrush. So I get a new head for the toothbrush every three months or, um, you know, soap, shampoo, body lotion, all the things that, you know, somebody might use in their daily routine, those kind of things that run out, um, dog food, of course, for my pets, uh, you know, those kind of things, I think it's for me, it's a lot about convenience. Uh, I'm not so big on um, like what most people would call luxury goods when you when you think about subscriptions, you know, the really fancy, uh, you know, food products and stuff like that. A lot of times I'm I'm a picky guy that wants to stare at the store and like pick it out for myself, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, and as a as a software company or as a as an engineering company, we subscribe to a ton of software as well. I mean, people often forget that you know, your email is a subscription or your, uh, you know, desktop uh, code editing software is a subscription and things like that. And so I would say we uh, subscribe to a insurmountable amount of uh, software as a service platforms that uh, that we use every day and that I couldn't live without. And, you know, I enjoy the idea as an agency owner that I pay just a little bit every month for software as opposed to like every year renewing my annual three thousand dollar ticket item for 12 developers or something um i love subscriptions for that reason you know and i think i use them probably more than an average person but at the same time i bet if if everybody sort of assessed what am i actually subscribed to you'd realize all of a sudden like well between my netflix and my hulu and my you know amazon prime and all of my other things like i subscribe to like 400 things um and so you know i think they've become a way of life for a lot of folks they're a convenience feature but at the same time i think they're doing things to eliminate waste as well when you think about you know having just the right amount of food in your pantry that gets delivered at a regular frequency you never have spoilage or whatever you know things like that i think can be used to help your family's economics or your personal economics i think they can also you know reduce your usage of or waste of stuff you know things like that and i think if you look at it that way it ultimately becomes a lot more, uh, you know, sort of palatable, I guess you would say. And then at the same time, you know, that extra Netflix subscription doesn't seem so bad either. Exactly. Perfect way to end cap with all the subscriptions everyone subscribes to. Right Wes, on. appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your insight. Have a great one. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We want to thank Wes once again for joining us. If you're interested in Sea Monster, you can head over to seamonsterstudios.com.